Hey guys, Josh Siegel here of Plugged In. Just want to let you know this interview with Representative Sean Kasten was conducted Thursday, October 14th. So some of the information may have changed a bit by the time you hear this podcast, but I think you'll still find it very relevant and interesting. Enjoy. Congressman Kasten, really appreciate you coming on to the Plugged In podcast, or our third uh, third episode here with, with former FERC Chairman Neil Chatterjee. We really appreciate having you. Thanks for joining us. time you got over to the House side of Capitol Hill, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I got over to the house side a couple of weeks ago when we had lunch, and uh, it's good to uh, good to catch up again. Uh, uh, for those folks who don't know, I've gotten to know the congressman pretty well over the past few years uh, in the various uh, energy conferences that we've attended together, and uh, consider him a friend. And uh, really appreciative that you've joined us here for uh, episode three of Plugged In. My pleasure. Yeah, for so uh, energy Twitter, love that lunch, by the way. <laughs> energy twitter's been loving the congressman and i guess i kind of wanted to start there uh, obviously uh, i've really enjoyed what you have done to bring attention to the importance of FERC with hot FERC summer i mean it went viral you were featured uh, as the moment of zen on the daily show uh while it was a super enjoyable thing to watch it also had substantive value can you just kind of walk us through what inspired you uh, to pursue Hot Ferk Summer? Well, I've got to start. I'm just sitting here chuckling. You, you remember remember that scene in 16 Candles where Molly Ringwald is talking to Anthony Michael Hall in the bathroom and she sort of realizes that he's a cool kid in another circle and <laughs> looks at her and he says, he says, yeah, I'm kind of the king of the dweebs. Um, and there's there's something about leading off with energy. Energy Twitter was excited. We went to lunch together. That has <laughs> <laughs> bipartisan look at that <laughs> we are kings of the dweebs yes yes um no so you know i, I mean I, I i i'd love to tell you that this was a master strategy that all came together exactly according to plan um the you know the truth is that you know I, i'm a dad which means i got strong dad joke energy i I grew up. Uh, I, I grew up in the '80s and '90s as a big fan of sort of the New York hip hop scene where I grew up, and I've always had that little bit in the zeitgeist. I've got teenage daughters, and you know the music in the house uh, follows accordingly. And it just started like as a joke. I think I threw up as a random tweet, like you know, let's make it a hot for summer, and and you know the comm staff took off with it, and it, it was funny. I think at one point, at one point, the team said, "All right, we wanted." We think we could take this hot for summer and make and do something fun with it. I said, all right, I will do that with one caveat that we have to write a speech that uses as many lyrics from the hot girl summer song as possible. And I, I thought that would sort of raise the degree of difficulty where it was going to be impossible because that is not a song that lends itself to speeches on the house floor. But uh, but made it work and it took off from there. And I and I think candidly, you know, that the fact that at the end of that, we've got people paying attention to FERC and, you know, being on the Daily Show is one thing. Got Laura Ingraham talking about the importance of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That is not oh, a wow. thing I a Democrat wow. typically gets done, right? Um, and so if we raise the reading level a little bit, more power to us. Wait, Neil, or sorry, uh, Congressman Kasson, just real quick on the hip hop, New York hip hop, that's, that's interesting. I'm a huge hip hop fan here. A lot of my readers will know I'm always dropping references in my newsletter. So wait, are you a Nas or Jay Z? Where do you come out there? Well, so I'm so I'm or a Rick little. Uh, I believe I'm I've definitely seen you. more Nas than Jay Z, but but I will be. Uh, I mean, this is growing up in New York in the '80s. The first concert I went to was uh, Billy Joel, 
because uh, mm. you know Westchester County. The second one was the Beastie Boys. The opening act for the Beastie Boys was Murphy's Law, thrash punk band, and the opening act for Murphy's Law was this band that was starting out um, that had these guys who came out holding what appeared to be automatic weapons. Um, nobody had ever heard of them. There was this band called Public Enemy. And <laughs> they they just burned down the house with that show. And uh, so that was, cool. sort of, that was sort of the cool. era I grew up. Wait, and, and Neil, just uh, on, I love it. on Hot Furk Summer also, Neil, I mean, I know that was a big thing of yours is you really wanted to make Furk more, you know, accessible, right? I mean, so th this must have been you know, pretty cool for you to, to see what, what Sean's doing to kind of piggyback and, and, and even make it more, you know, mainstream. Yeah, no, look, one of the things that uh, I come, came to realize during my time at the commission was that, you know, even participating in FERC dockets and doing things like self-nominating for a technical conference, a lot of people were intimidated to engage because they felt like they didn't have the expertise or the background. Uh, and, people have commented to me that one of the things that they appreciated about my approach at FERC was I made FERC less intimidating. I made it more accessible. And then I think the congressman just took it to the next level to yeah. where I actually do think it will have a direct benefit in FERC's work going forward. Not only did he build momentum around getting uh, my friend Willie Phillips nominated to fill my seat, but I think he also has people paying attention to FERC. And in future dockets, I think you're going to see a wider array of participants step forward because they feel less intimidated and that's uh, a, a credit to you congressman uh, uh, your, your your effort really did go a long way well I, I would point out and you know i think you know neil and this goes back to one of the first conversations i had with you out in aspen a couple of years ago that I, I wish people better understood that if you care about climate we have never passed a more impactful climate bill than FERC order 888 and you know and which which one is that guys sorry well so by the end of that sentence i've lost my audience but this, <laughs> this was the ruling this was the ruling that essentially um it, it came on the heels of the 1992 energy policy act that deregulated energy markets and prior to that order electric utilities in this country dispatch assets based on you know essentially on reliability considerations um, because they had guaranteed returns and now we have this order that said we're going to set markets. You're going to preferentially dispatch your least cost asset and sell it into these wholesale power markets because we think markets are great tools to rationalize asset dispatch. And literally within 10 years of that passing, maybe 15, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, we went from a grid that averaged 1,300 pounds a megawatt hour of CO2 to less, to close to 900. And primarily because the you know, what are the cheapest assets on the grid? Well, nuclear went from a 60% capacity factor to a 90% capacity factor. Mm -hmm. The private sector built a ton of combined cycle gas to shut down all the simple cycle because in that kind of market, you want to run the more efficient asset. And I, I, I'm hard pressed to find anything that made that big of a climate impact. And yet we never think about mm -hmm. FERC right. as an agency that is both market focused and climate focused and can give us the, the absolute best lowest cost solution. By the way, over that same time period that the CO2 went down, the average price of electricity in the US in real terms fell by 6%, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we right. can have our cake, we can eat it, but we've got to do yeah. it by really increasing markets. 888 was big. Uh, I would like to think I took it a degree further with 2222. And I'm hopeful that you know 10 years from now, folks like you and I will be having conversations about 2222 in the same vein that we look at 888. I think just real for, for a sec, I think most of our audience is probably familiar with your background, but I do think it's interesting that someone who came uh, uh, from your 
uh, profile, you know, opted to run for Congress. You didn't have to do this. You chose to serve the public. Can you just real quickly highlight for our listeners uh, what your background was prior to running? Well, so the quick thumbnail is I'm an engineer by training, did uh, basic research in engineering into various advanced energy technologies, and then got the entrepreneurial bug. Um, took over one company, turned around, then started another one and sold that one in 16. And uh, Trump happened and I got the call to public service um, to try to um, get our country back on track. The, the somewhat longer version is that the I've always been concerned about climate change. And I started out getting out of college thinking this is a science problem because we got to develop the technologies. And then gradually, I felt like it's an engineering problem because we just have to get these proven technologies and put them into packages. Then I said, no, this is really a business problem because there's so many technologies that are underdeployed. The first company I ran, we were deploying literally 80-year-old technology that was two to three times as efficient as the electric grid um, and had a two to three-year payback. And it was just a marketing challenge. And, and I, I finally sort of came away at the end after we sold our company in 16, realizing that there's no, there are no economic laws that get in the way of us um, lowering CO2 emissions profitably. There's no thermodynamic laws that get in the way, but, but man, did I spend a lot of time fighting with the laws of the United States. And, <laughs> um, and not to get all clash on you, but if you're gonna fight the law you know, and expect to win, um, the, you know, don't fight the laws of thermodynamics or economics, fight the laws of the United States because that's the only one you can change. Flavor Flav is the sun, public enemy number one, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that that's uh, that's I think that's a really good uh, segue here as you, as you talk about uh, you know the importance of laws and legislation to 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 some of what's what's going on here in in Congress. I mean, how would you how would you kind of frame the stakes here in the next couple of weeks for what Democrats are are trying to do with with reconciliation? I found it interesting. You know, I had a Glasgow the UN Climate Summit here October thirty first. I mean, you've had from the administration side, you've had. Uh, you know, in recent days, Gina McCarthy on the domestic side say, well, you know, Congress, what they're doing isn't all that important. We have, we can, there's a lot we can do. We don't need it. There's a lot we can do executive. And then John Kerry says, if Cong if Congress fails, he said this recently, then it's, it's almost as bad as, is Donald Trump leaving the Paris agreement. I mean, how, what, what are, what are the stakes for, for what you're doing here? Well, I, I want to first just reframe your question because I, and maybe you didn't intend it this way, but you said, what are the stakes for Democrats? These are the stakes for our country. Is the stakes for our species, um, and I, what's what I think weights heavily on all of us going into Glasgow, is that when the rest of the world signed the Kyoto Accord, the United States didn't because the Senate didn't have the votes. When the when Paris was structured and drafted, it was expressly designed to not require the consent of parliamentary bodies because the rest of the world judged that the Senate would not step up. We then pulled out of Paris, and we're now sitting here in this moment saying, will the Senate come to an agreement to act like this is a, this is a crisis of a lifetime, or will the Senate decide that the best choice of action is to kick the can down the road with the hope that maybe sometime in the future, someone with the leadership skills that is currently not present will be in those jobs. And what's, it's tragic that we frame that as a, what will the Democrats do, because we, I wish it wasn't true, but we simply have no support across the aisle legislatively for treating climate change like a scientific problem worthy of attention. It didn't used to be this way, right? The, you know, who, who created global cap and trade models? 
that was the Reagan and Bush White Houses under you know Ruckelshaus and Bill Riley who, who put that in place um, and then rolled it out further in the acid rain training program. We, but you know, so we're now left saying, can we get this through the Senate where the working assumption is not a single Republican will vote for it. And I think the, the risk we face going into Kyoto is that, or not, I'm sorry, not Kyoto, Scott, yep. going into Glasgow, yep. they all blend together after a while, <laughs> is that there are a lot of really good things that the White House is doing at an executive level. Um, you know, the whole of government approach to climate. I think there's some really good things that FERC can do. Um, but if we get there and just talk a lot of pretty word, words, the rest of the world is watching our feed. And, you know, I, I, the, when I was in Madrid, um, one of the comments that was made to us by one of the European uh, members of the parliamentarians we met with, they said, you know, when we've got a lot of experience over here that when the United States chooses not to lead, bad things happen. And so the moment right now is, will we put ourselves in a position to lead in Glasgow or we will put it where we put ourselves in a position where the rest of the world that cares about this says we're just going to have to follow what China and India and Russia can agree to because the United States is going to once again for the last 30 years prove that the United the Senate is incapable of action. So you're, you're not very you're not very happy with uh, with Joe Manchin right now. I mean, I would assume what, what, what's your what I mean, what's your message for him? Do you have any sense of what he wants? It, well, it, again, I'd come back. I'll, I'll take any two votes to get us over the top. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the Manchin is at least engaging, right? Um, I think the I think what's legitimately hard for Manchin, and this this all goes back to the market issue. The single loneliest position in Washington is to be an advocate of markets. There are people who advocate for the interests of existing businesses. There are people who advocate, you know, you know, for the you know collectivization of problems. You know, call it whatever word you want, but are sort of anti-business. And to actually advocate for market positions is really lonely because there isn't a business in the world that comes to Washington and says, um, I wish there were lower barriers to entry in my sector. Um, I wish my competitors had an easier time. And I mentioned that in the context of Mansion because the transition to clean energy is the transition to cheap energy. Every single clean source of clean energy that's gonna get deployed and that has been deployed is basically a zero or very low marginal cost generator. And thanks to the good work at FERC, they're gonna be the cheaper sources on the grid. That's the death of coal, right? Coal, coal cannot compete in a world where they have to compete on their economic merits. And we've seen that over the last decade. And so what do you do if you are the representative of a state where the economy depends on buggy whips, right? We don't oppose cars. And, and so I, I understand the tension that Manchin is under. And I think it's important, you know, it's why we put so much time in this bill and thinking about how do we make sure that we, we provide a transition for people who, you know, had good jobs, like, you know, you know, it, you know we're, we're sustained and supported by an industry that's not going to be there anymore. How do we look out for those people? And, um, and we've got to do that. We got to figure out how to get, you know, not just mansion, but people who represent oil, gas, coal-dependent regions um, on board with that. As I've, and Neil and I have had this conversation before, but I think we can stipulate that clean energy is a net gain for society. But if, if, if Illinois gains, gains a billion dollars and West Virginia loses a half a billion, mansion's not going to feel like that's a net victory he can celebrate. <laughs> 
So there's some options on the table that are being kicked around. You and I have talked before uh, about pricing carbon. The policy du jour right now seems to be the clean electricity payment program, the CEPP. There was some reporting that came out today, and we uh, actually talked to Senator Capito on the podcast last week about what it might take to get Manchin on board with the CEPP. And it looks like it might be accommodations for natural gas and coal. If those are your choices, a CEPP that accommodates natural gas and coal or a price on carbon, uh, where do you fall there? Well, I'm not sure that's the universe of choices. The, if, you, if you include the CEPP as drafted in, in the plan we finally pass, then I think we can look ourselves in the eye. More importantly, we can look our kids in the eye and say we passed the most impactful climate legislation that has ever passed Congress. You're talking about the House, the version that passed. Yeah, the, yeah, the House that's, that's okay. That's uh, you know, the the estimates that we just had some briefing yesterday, somewhere between 35 and 45 percent reduction in CO2 emissions. Right. Um, you know, millions of new jobs, really transformative. This the CEPP is the lion's share of that benefit. So it's almost bimodal that if you if you take out or weaken the CEPP, it's no longer a climate bill. For all practical, there's some other stuff in there, but that's sort of the elephant in the room. Um, if <clears throat> I you know I can you know if if you call arsenic water, I guess you can legally do that, but it doesn't make it into water. And <laughs> if you if you say that if you say that you know coal and gas fired generation is going to lower CO two, you can say it, but make it true. Well, with, well, I think they're talking about with carbon capture, right? I mean, I mean, is there is there a way to accommodate? Well, um, so I got to be careful how I say this. Um, funding carbon capture and sequestration in a power plant—different story if you're talking about it at a, at a you know, you know, an ethanol plant or someplace else. But funding right. it at a power plant is sort of like providing tax credits for unicorns. Um, if you believe in unicorns, it's a great thing. But carbon capture and sequestration in the power sector is the only technology, the only carbon control technology that is, that requires you to spend more money on the capital cost of the plant so that you can raise your operating cost. I don't care what tax credit you put on, on top of that, that is, that is never going to pencil. And so if, if we have to do that because you know, it persuades people to sign on, I'll, I'll take it. But, you know, you know, look at we we wasted billions of dollars on future gen in Illinois. That was a total boondoggle. It was going to do it. We just demolished the Kemper coal plant that didn't even generate a single megawatt hour. Um, that was also, what, seven billion dollars. Um, we did that because you could prove on the back of a napkin that that investment was never going to pencil. But people were satisfied that we could throw federal dollars at something and, and build a boondoggle that never ran. If if you're telling me that I've got a way to throw $7 billion at a boondoggle and then we can lower CO2 emissions, I will take that. It's not good policy, but if that's the way to get it done, I'll take it. What about a price on carbon? Um, sure, but do it right. Um, the, not all prices on carbon are equal. Um, and again, I go, back to, I go back to Bill Riley and Bill Ruckel's house. The structure they set up in the Montreal Protocol was a true market-based pricing of pollution externalities where, where sources had to pay money to sinks, they negotiated in an open market to, to sort of discover where that price would sit and did it in the context of a declining cap. It worked really well. We don't have conversations about the ozone hole anymore. We don't have conversations about losing sugar maples in New England um, when applied to the acid rain trading program. 
every price on carbon that's been debated in Congress really forever has largely forgotten that market-based approach. You know, if you're talking about a carbon tax, um, you know, would any market person say that the way to make sure we allocate shoes in society is for the federal government to charge everybody who wants a shoe a tax on shoes and then to figure out how to get shoes into your hands? Like, that's, that, sounds, that doesn't sound very capitalist to me, right? And yet that's the theory behind a carbon tax, that if polluters pay for it, the government will then, in our wisdom, figure out how to allocate that money to lower CO2 emissions. And I think there's some very, very sloppy and lazy economists out there who have come to the conclusion that because they built a spreadsheet that says a change in the cost of one player in an industry affects the rate of return of another, that it's true and it's it's just not true. I can tell you from my own experience, um, you know, I, I built clean energy projects in response to incentives. I never built a clean energy project because my competitors had a change in their cost structure. Um, so do a market-based price on carbon. Um, I've been pushing a bill for a while to do that, the Tradable Performance Standard Act, that's really modeled in the Montreal Protocol. Um, as you and I have talked about, Neil, um, I, I actually think FERC would be a great place to do that. We've been pushing this, energy, this uh, energy price act to say that in the context of the mass versus EPA decision and the context of the Sierra Pacific ruling that FERC I think already has the authority to figure out how to factor carbon in, into the, at least in the power sector. Um, the only question is whether they have an affirmative obligation. Um, yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Do you think the, the, current, the current FERC leadership certainly seems motivated to act in this regard, uh, in terms of your Energy Price Act, uh, I mean, do you think that we we need legislation to clarify what is meant by just and reasonable wholesale rates under the Federal Power Act, or could FERC just go in this direction unilaterally? So I, I think at some point FERC doesn't isn't going to have a choice, and the question is whether they do this, you know, in response to a crisis or they do it to head off a crisis. And and the reason I say that is because and this is this is sort of be careful what you wish for. Much as I love 888, the FERC ruling 888, the the practice of providing differential advantage to low marginal cost power generation technologies has been awesome. It lowered the price of power. It drove us to lower CO2 emissions. It's also created a circumstance where the zero low marginal cost generators keep knocking the expensive stuff off the system. And the price of power is falling to a point where, where we're losing the incentive to build new assets. You know, you, you saw this, um, I don't know if this over, I don't know if you were at FERC then, Neil, but remember that case that BPA brought where they sued FERC and ultimately they lost where they wanted to get out from under wind PPAs because they had so many hours on their system where the price of power was negative and they were losing power, losing money with every, every megawatt hour they purchased. And ultimately they were the Supreme Court said you have to honor these contracts. You signed them; be a takings violation otherwise. But that was the result of the massive success of renewable energy. That you've got all these zero marginal cost generators out there that are all price takers, and these clearing prices don't work for oil. And that happens. Fast forward to the present day. But leave aside all of the political shenanigans. What's happening in Ohio and Illinois right now with the nuclear industry? What's happening is that the price of power has fallen to a point where a really low marginal cost technology can't justify the investment in a fueling recycle um, in, a, in a refueling cycle. Um, what's happened to the nuke industry is going to happen to solar and wind soon enough, right? What is your incentive to build an asset? 
if the revenue you get is, is, is trivial because everything on the system has a zero marginal cost. And the reason why I say I think that's going to hit FERC is eventually going to get to reliability questions. You're going to get to who builds what. And I think, I think FERC is going to be forced to say, okay, we're going to have to make a decision about something other than marginal operating costs um, to make these markets work. And the only logical conclusion to that in, in the wake of the, you know, the endangerment finding is to preferentially reward low zero carbon plants. Tell me if you disagree. I mean, you, you sat in the chair. I, look, I, my question more is from a practicality standpoint. We've got this reconciliation bill before us. Questions about what the CEPP would look like and could it get through. Questions about what a carbon price would look like and could it get through. You got. You said at the beginning we have to take something to Glasgow to demonstrate leadership. Could this be something that you could get into play that would that would scratch that itch and demonstrate U.S. leadership? Um, I mean, I think at this point it's I'm sort of a CEPP or bust, not because CEPP mm. is the ideal one, but because that has been through hearings. We understand it. If we're going to make something that is that transformative on the power sector, I mean, look, the CEPP, any any bill for for scientific reasons. We have to have meaningful, massive reductions by 2030. That's nine years from now. We don't have the luxury to get this wrong. And we haven't had meaningful debates about, about carbon pricing or these other issues. And I think whereas we have had lots of meaningful debates about you know, the CES and then morphed into a parliamentarian-friendly CPP. And, and so I think at this point, we as in Congress are much more satisfied that we've thought through some of the unintended consequences and mitigated them as much as we can on a CPP than you would on something we'd introduce from whole cloth now before the end of the month. Just, just a, a wrap, a quick one on CPP. There's, so obviously this is a mix of, of grants and penalties. We've heard that Joe, Joe Manchin, I mean, it's been reported that Joe Manchin isn't a fan of the penalties like is there is there a CPPP with no pan, penalties or that just makes no sense to just have a well, grant program? Well, there's two problems. I mean, the CPP is structured, you know, you're right, it has these carrots and sticks. And if you're, if you take away the stick, you're never going to shut down the coal in West Virginia. And so that's a good thing to do if you don't give a rat's ass about climate. Um, it's, it's not scientifically informed. Now, as a separate matter, I would point out that Mr. Manchin has also said that he really doesn't like the price tag of the Build Back Better agreement. Um, if you want to make the CPP really expensive, get rid of the penalties. This is a much pricier provision if it's if it's all carrot and no stick. Um, those those were designed to be um, substantially offsetting. And just close, closing the book on the carbon price piece. Do you see? I mean, we know that. I mean, there's an effort in the Senate. We spoke with Sheldon, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a big carbon pricing proponent. He he, you know, he's basically saying, look, let's put it on the Senate. We'll, let's get this to the floor. We'll, we'll we'll put that pressure on ourselves. He he talked about what happened with with cap and trade and and. Uh, you know, he, he just, he feels like it, it, yeah, it's on the Senate's approved this time would, would be different. But I mean, do you think the House would even have on the, on the Democrat side would even have the votes for that? Or, because it seems that liberals are more, you know, kind of skeptical of, of carbon pricing as a Yeah, no, and, and look, and I, and, it, you know, Sheldon's a good friend and I really admire what he's trying to do. And I disagree with it. I, I don't think you'll get the votes in the House. And, and I also think to go back to what I was saying about markets, the and, and I'm sorry to keep flashing back to the 80s, but I guess that's how the conversation started. So we're going to keep <laughs> when when the you know when when the when the Montreal Protocol and the Acerian programs were developed, um, you know if if you recall, um, 
the basic democratic capital D party democratic approach to climate change was command and control thou shalt we are going to mandate certain technologies and the ideas of the Reagan and Bush White House was markets are actually really good ways to do that so let's use markets to price externalities and go through and when when the Republican Party abandoned any commitment to climate change largely when Gingrich came in and said I'm going to oppose it if if Clinton you know if Clinton's for it I'm going to oppose it that left us in a position where the 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 healthy pressures to say let's use markets to address these problems really went away and so you know the ideas that we have in ascension for pricing carbon are yeah. are, are very hostile to the ideas of markets right i mean i mean I, I told you i don't like carbon taxing the even worse idea is tax and dividend because if you tax and dividend you say i'm going to put a price on carbon and then i'm going to expressly guarantee that the money that I take in will not be used for CO2 reduction, right? The it's- And, that, it, and it's that's, what's being, be, that's what's being talked about in, in a way. In yeah, a way. No, and, that's, I mean, and that's the problem that, that because the political right is not at the table, right. the, the, the conversation, you know, these are framed, they use words that sound like they're capitalist ideas, but, but they're not. And I'm not saying that because like, I want to get into, are you pro-capitalism or pro-socialism? I'm saying that because the, it is critical that we lower the CO2 as quickly as possible. And when dollars are finite, the as quickly as possible also means as cheaply as possible. Yeah. And, and, and we know how to do that using market-based tools. Um, I think the, the set, because of its combination of, of carrots and sticks, is, is not ideal, but it's much closer to that optimum than a simple carbon tax would be. And I, and I think you, yeah. and to the way your question started, I think there's enough people in the house that share my views um, that it would be very hard. And, and and by the way, I don't have a majority who share my views. So I don't think you could have any carbon pricing bill that you would introduce to the house today that mm -hmm. you would get a majority of the Democrats to say, yeah, this this jibes with how I've been thinking about this problem for the last 20 years. And and before we close the book and start, I know you have a story you guys want to regal us with, but uh, but Neil, wait, you Neil, you uh. I'm just curious what you think about the comments there that that uh, Congressman Kasten made on, on the carbon price and dividend, because I know that's something you're. Yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm involved with the CLC and we are pushing this. And uh, uh, the congressman and I, uh, he was very gracious and we, we had a, a lunch conversation about this. And uh, 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 I'm going to continue to work him on it. But uh, obviously, I've got my work cut out for me. But pivoting ahead, a little I'll, I'll bit. Keep, I'll keep trying to persuade you that capitalism is a good thing and we'll see where we get <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of that lunch uh, and, and energy Twitter, kind of where we started, uh, I, I want to, you know, explore a couple of things here. One, I, I just got to say, uh, you know, your engagement with energy Twitter has been fantastic. And I will say, you know, someone who came out of FERC where we have these really stringent ex parte communication rules, I think they're kind of outdated because I'll tell you, everybody in that building, everyone in, in the leadership on the commission, they're watching energy Twitter. It's really clever what you have done engaging with Energy Twitter. Do you have, you know, particular folks that you're following on there that you think make good commentary? Who should our listeners be, uh, you know, clicking on uh, uh, in the Energy Twitter realm? Oh, that's that's a great question. You know, it's 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 funny. You know, keep in mind that before I came to Congress, I was 20 years in the energy world, and my my Twitter is Energy Twitter. Like that's where I sort of <laughs> that's where I sort of came up into Twitter. So when I came into Congress, <laughs> I had you know, whatever, you know, 8,000 followers or something like that. And they were all energy nerds. So that's, that's always, <laughs> um, well, I, I will point that, out that, 
no, I was gonna say there's a handful of people and you know and some of these people have moved on to their other areas I think uh, um, you know Jesse Jenkins at, 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 uh, at Princeton is terrific um, I, um, I, oh I'm gonna well David Roberts of course has been fantastic and thoughtful on the politics of this for a long time um, uh, why can't I remember his name the, the British guy who I think has, has does some of the most thought Michael Liebrich um, does mm -hmm fascinating things about sort of the accounting and, and you know global financial issues um i don't know go, go look up sean casson at twitter and go through my followers you'll find a lot and, of and this is this is you tweeting no ghostwriter here you're this is you uh, personally no this is the uh, look look you're talking to the guy who two years ago said that i was really happy that um cardi b was embracing the weatherization assistance program um, <laughs> That is not the kind of thing that gets cleared by staff in advance. <laughs> I, I will point out to both of you that only one person on this podcast had Dolly Parton and Ted Lasso engaged with him on energy. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Although you, you made a laudable effort to, uh, to, to bring in uh, Dolly. Uh, so speaking of energy Twitter, uh, you and I went to lunch a few weeks ago. We posted this great picture of the two of us together. And the number one comment I got wasn't about this bipartisan lunch or what we talked about or the policy. So many people commented to me about your perfect teeth. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about these teeth? <laughs> that, was a, that was a beautiful segue. I, I, I think it's... <laughs> So uh, um, my perfect teeth are the, are the result of a, uh, um, a, a, a sporting endeavor um, that when I was uh, um, my senior year of college, I played rugby all through college and uh, we were at our, our final banquet senior year. And for reasons that are shrouded in mystery and probably shrouded in more than just mystery, it was apparent at some point that I needed to stand up and dance on a table. And, uh, <laughs> uh -huh. and and, and, you know, because of my leadership skills, um, several other people also, once they saw me up there, thought that was a good idea. And uh, next thing I realized, my, my date was looking at me and as I was on the floor and the table was broken and saying she needed to take me to the emergency room. So, uh, so uh, if, one, if one does not have perfectly symmetrical teeth, knocking them all out um, and then having a dentist uh, replace them over several, uh, several surgeries, is a good way to get them all symmetrical. So I, I wouldn't wouldn't recommend it for the kids at home. But uh, so silver linings to a, a bad bad life bad life decisions about <laughs> dancing on uh, tables. That's nice. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, no, too bad our listeners can't see your teeth. As a, uh, but uh, I think they can imagine. It. Maybe we'll start, they'll start to Google it. Um, no, so, that yeah, was we, what you were focusing on over lunch, Dale. <laughs> well, look, I just uh, am disappointed that we didn't have that kind of fun uh, at the Aspen Institute uh, that uh, that apparently you had before. I, I would have been looking forward to something like that. Yeah, no. Well, hopefully, with uh, hopefully as we're through COVID, I'm sure we'll start to get those trips again. It's been they haven't been quite the same over Zoom. That's a great group, but uh, they're more fun in person. Well, Congressman, thank you for uh, for taking the time to join us for uh, for episode three of uh, of Plugged In. Uh, uh, and thank you for uh, for for giving the, uh, the the lower chamber some some access and coverage uh, on the podcast. Uh, as you and I have discussed before, I am a Senate snob and will continue to be. But I think uh, your expertise and your commentary show that uh, there's a lot of uh, quality thinking and 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 policy being made uh, in the House of Representatives as well. And so, uh, Josh and I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, hey, thanks so much for having me, and uh, 
I will look, look forward to seeing you in person soon, or at least uh, tweeting at you. And hopefully we'll get uh, we'll get Dolly Parton to actually chime in and tweet at us both next time. That'd be great. Thanks, thanks Congressman. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Josh. That's a wrap of the third episode of the Plugged In Podcast. We'll have another big guest for you next week, Tuesday at noon Eastern, same time. Stay here for more, more fun stuff. And of course, WashingtonExaminer.com is where you can find more of my work. And Daily on Energy is where I do most of my writing. That's my newsletter. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.